0: On August 24th, 1988. What was that? Whatever. 15, 16 years ago. Friends Janelle Spain and Karen Himmel were enjoying a camping trip just off the Welland River, which is a, a tributary which leads right into the Niagara River, which leads to the Niagara Falls. A week earlier, Janelle had purchased a boat which they were out enjoying their camping trip. She'd, she'd purchased it just a week before, and they'd taken their boat out for a spin. Janelle and Karen spent the afternoon on a boat, spending much of their time on the Niagara River, just uh, engine off, basking in the sun, enjoying the wonderful Ontario, Canada, New York day. When evening came, they watched the sun go down but it went down much more quickly than they expected and as they found themselves completely in the dark, they proceeded to boat back to their camp. However, they were disoriented in the dark and traveling down the river, they were looking for the canal which goes off to the, the left where their campsite was and, and they missed that. And instead, were traveling straight down the Niagara Rivers for the falls and, and they saw the, the control gates that regulate the flow of water to the falls, which are about a mile before. They're like a dam that that comes down and then the the falls come. And they mistook that for the canal that led them back to the Welland River. Sheila and Tom Hodges were traveling a car along the falls and uh, they happened to see this small boat trolling down the Niagara River. And uh, they noticed that something was incredibly wrong. Tom, familiar with uh, Niagara Falls and Familiar with the control gates, said I don't think that anyone in their right mind would go beyond that point with just one engine on their boat. These gates, control gates, are about a mile from the Niagara Falls and they've been called the point of no return because anybody goes beyond them will certainly be carried over the falls. Well, these two women, mistaking the control gates for their canal, went right over the dam. They were in the point of no return. Sheila, who watched what was happening, convinced that they were dead as they dropped about 10 to 12 feet into the water, said they were shocked to see them cup up, abreast, afloat, up in this violent water just past the dam as they're leading down to the Niagara Falls. They watched these two women turn the boat around, realizing they're in trouble trying to go back up, but they couldn't go up up the dam, up this 10-foot Water, but they certainly couldn't go down below. They were facing the Niagara Falls on the other side. There's no way that, that they would return. Tom ran for help. Sheila watched what was taking place. She said, I was shaking from head to toe. And I really had little hope, she said, that they would be saved. I, kept just, I just kept imagining what it would feel like being at the brink and knowing, knowing you're gone. Well nine one one was called, rescue workers arrived on the scene, they, they shined their flashlights and they, they spotted the women now having jumped from the boat and trying to swim in these raging waters. One of them, Karen Himmel, began to swim towards the light. As uh, she was swimming along, she was swimming parallel to the the current which was rushing down there, kind of making way towards the the walls, the retaining wall, which the water is about 20 feet below. And the rescue workers saw what was happening and kept screaming to her, keep swimming, keep swimming, keep swimming, keep swimming. And they were yelling and she was just swimming right towards the light. And eventually they they lowered a rope down about 20 feet. She grabbed her and they, they pulled her up. Just right up to safety. Had a gnash in her. Leg from the boat's propeller was in shock, but she was safe. The other woman, Janelle, was assumed to be dead. But the firefighters from the Niagara Falls Department had joined in the search, and the captain of the department said, drive down the road, see if you can see anything. When they stopped their engines and paused, they heard Janelle screaming. She was out in the, the rapids there. She was about 350 yards from the fall and exhausted and unable to, to swim The rescue workers yelled to her, Swim! And she said, I can't, I can't. And one of the rescue workers thought thought he had a chance. So he tied a rope around his waist and swam out 350 yards, grabbed her by the back, and dragged her to safety. Unbelievably, she was unharmed, only exhausted. The only thing wrong was that she was wet. Thirty seconds after, Janelle was pulled to safety. The boat reached the edge of the falls and fell over. Now, for every rescue made in the Niagara Falls, certainly there are others that end in tragedy. Here is a good story of people who are drifting and yet saved and rescued. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our text is found in chapter 2, verses 1-4. through In this text, we have a warning. It's a warning not to drift. It's a warning not to get too close to the falls. It's a warning to pay attention to the sun going down so that you don't lose your bearings and miss your way into the canal. Appropriately, the title of my message this morning is two words, don't drift. Indeed, that is the message of our text this morning. If I read it, chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, Look, look for those words. I'm sure you can find them. For this reason, the writer writes, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. I trust you can see the warning in this text. Which verse does warning come? Verse what? Verse what? Verse 1. It's right there. So that you do not drift away from it. This is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Five times throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer interrupts his treatise on the superiority of Christ to warn his listeners of the dangers that face them. Often the warnings are parenthetical, meaning that he's speaking about the glories of Jesus and then steps aside, if you will, and then says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And continues on parenthetically. And then if you look even in your Bibles, in verse 5, he returns to speaking about angels. says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Chapter 1 is about how Jesus is better than the angels. He's going to pick up the angels again in chapter 2, verse 5. But here's a parenthetical warning section for us. And the warning is simply this. Don't drift. It's the first of 5. The second comes in chapter 3. Don't harden your hearts. The third comes in chapter 6. Press on to maturity. Don't turn away from Christ. The fourth comes in chapter 10. Don't set Jesus aside. The last one comes in chapter 12. Don't refuse him who's speaking. They all, it can be argued, ramp in intensity. The first one is a bit mild. It's just a warning against drifting slowly. Chapter 3 gets a little bit stronger. It's a a warning about hardening your heart and refusing to believe. Chapter 6 is stronger yet. It's It's a warning about putting Jesus to open shame. In chapter 10, it's Stronger Still. It's about sinning willfully in defiance. Being in defiance of your own sin. Like sinning with a high-handed fist towards God. Speaks of how it's a terrifying thing if that's your situation. And in chapter 12, it's the strongest of them all says, Our God is a consuming fire. And will consume us if we don't heed our warnings. In many ways, I would say these warnings are the key to the book of Hebrews. Because the author here didn't just set out just to write a nice treatise about Jesus and leave it at that. No, he wrote with a reason. There were those Jewish people who'd come out of Judaism and had seen and embraced the church and been in with Jesus and been in with the church and yet we're, we're looking back and looking at the, the things of the Jewish religion and we're, we're becoming enamored with that and we're, we're in danger of drifting away and drifting back towards that, rejecting Jesus. And the writer five times puts it on and says, listen, Jesus is greater. This is what I'm writing about. So, press on. Keep going. Press on to know Him. Don't neglect these things. And the warning today is this. Don't drift. So I told that story about Janelle Spain and Karen Himmel. I'm sure that you can picture them just drifting along the Niagara River, trolling in their boat towards the falls. You can see what drifting is. Obviously, this text though this morning isn't about getting in boats and drifting down a river. It's okay to be in boats. It's okay to boat in the river. What he's talking about is using a metaphor to describe one who drifts in his faith. And you know what? Drifting is, is so easy to do, isn't it? To drift, it takes no effort. You just sit back, do nothing, and just slip away. Had an experience this summer of spending a day at the beach on the river. Never done this before, but was on the Mississippi River and just kind of spending a day there really along a rush-moving, uh, quickly, rapidly-moving um, Mississippi River. And, and it was very interesting that we were there on the river and uh, kind of enjoying this. And we had some other folks that came up and, uh, and docked, I guess, down. This, the river's is going this way, okay, so picture it. They docked down here. Man and woman got out of their boat, and they were, what were they wearing, upon? They were like wearing these diapers, all right? Uh, uh, they looked like huge diapers, and what they were, were they were like life preservers that you kind of sit in, okay? They looked funny, but anyway, they got out, they got their drink in hand, and they kind of walked by us on the beach, and they walked, walked way up here, diapers, diapers in hand, you know, and, and then they, they got in the river, and they just sat there in hand, and these diapers kind of helped them up, and they had their drink there, and they just kind of, they twisted around, doing nothing. As I remember, their dog was kind of in there swimming with them, and they kind of throwing sticks to the dog, and and they had their their drinks, and they looked back, and they were waving about us, (laughs) we were on the beach, having a great time, are you? Yeah, we're good, and kind of drifting around a little bit more, and we're just enjoying life, and kind of drifted, and there was their boat, and they drifted right past their boat, and... And went on, and then pretty soon after that, then they, you know, they they got in and and got up on the shore, and did they do this twice? And then they picked up their diapers again and walked walked by. You know what? It took no effort for them to get upstream and to move downstream. Took like zero. And that's the danger of walking away. See, you don't need to be violently opposed to the gospel to suffer loss. You just need to ignore it. You just need to be bored with it or indifferent with it. And then you make choices. You reduce your Bible reading. You pray a little bit less. At night, you turn on the television a little bit more. You stay up late, so you can't get up in the morning to have your usual devotions. You choose a late Saturday night activity, which... Makes church attendance on Sunday just a bit, a bit hard one Sunday. You feel your life become too busy to meet with the church when it gathers. You stop attending that Bible study you used to attend. You stop attending that prayer meeting you used to frequent. And rather than, than being with the people of the church and fellowshipping with other Christians, you just spend the night at home watching a movie. That's how you drift. You just let these little things slip. It's usually not one radical decision that people make that turn them away from the Lord. It's all the small decisions which in and of themselves are really basically harmless. It's no great sin to read your Bible a little bit less today because things are busy for you. It's no great sin to pray a little bit less today because of early morning commitments and meetings. It's no great sin to stay up late at night. It's no great sin to miss church on any given Sunday morning. It's no great sin to skip a Bible study or a prayer meeting. It's no great sin to say, Boy, I'm so fatigued. I'm just going to watch a movie tonight and relax rather than having people over or being with the people of the church. The danger, though, is when it starts to compound. And the Bible reading becomes less and less until you aren't reading your Bibles anymore. If you're not reading your Bibles consistently, you're drifting. Your time of prayer becomes less and less and less until you're not praying at all. If you're not praying at all, you're drifting. Late nights become your habit so you're physically unable to get up early in the morning to spend any time with the Lord. Church attendance becomes spotty. You're drifting. And then soon, not at all. Skipping a Bible study leads to skipping another one and then another one and then you're not gathering in any kind of small group for accountability and edification and encouragement. Your to at prayer meeting becomes last and last and last, and eventually you never pray with anybody in the church. You neglect time of fellowship. And it becomes a habit. And soon you never share your time with the people of the church at all because you've drifted. You keep to yourself and thus lack the encouragement that you need to survive in your faith. Results tragic, as one commentator said, inaction is fatal. And should those people with their diapers stay in the river, they'll just keep drifting and drifting and drifting and never be able to swim back upstream into their boat because they've drifted too far. And would they be on the Niagara Falls? They'd fall over the falls. John Piper said it really well. He said this, The life of this world is not a lake, it's a river. And the river is flowing downstream to destruction. If you do not listen earnestly to Jesus and consider Him daily and fix your eyes on Him hourly, then you will not stand still. You will go backwards. You will float by. You know, if those people we saw had their diapers and they were out in the middle of a lake, they would just stay right there. They wouldn't move. They'd be okay. That's right where they were. No action. That's right where they were. But since they're on a river, they drifted down. And life is a river. And without effort, that's where you'll drift. You say, "What's the cure, Steve? What, what's the cure to not drifting?" And you know what? Here's the amazing thing: it is so easy. It is so easy. It's to pay attention to Jesus. It's to be alert, keep your mind engaged in the things of God. It's just looking to Jesus. And I say this because that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Look at verse, chapter two, verse one. <clears throat> For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we not drift away from it. In other words, the exhortation really in this passage is it's almost like, "Pay attention to Jesus so that you don't drift." So the answer to drifting is to pay attention to Him. Look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. Look at all the glories of what He's done for us. Now, I find it interesting here that he he doesn't tell us to pay attention to anything new. He doesn't tell us to buy the the latest book, stay current on all the greatest music, the the latest insights of all the best teachers. No, no, no. He he tells us to be engaged in what we have heard. It's not the latest theories of this, the latest theories of that, or the newest therapy. He says, think upon, reflect upon the things you have heard. He's saying, don't look at anything new. Look to the things you already know and pay attention to them. So you say, what have we heard? Well, we've heard a lot about Jesus. We've heard about His salvation. We've heard the good news. We've heard the Gospel. And the divine counsel to us is to pay attention to these things. Ponder them. Think about them. Don't forget them. Remember them. Several other times in the book of Hebrews it says the same thing. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Consider Jesus. Just think about Him. Reflect on Jesus. And as you do that, that will help you from drifting. He says in chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Just fix your eyes on Him. See Him. Look at Him. And this is so easy, isn't it? And this is where the Gospel is so easy. It just says believe and trust and see and listen and pay attention. He's not telling us really to do any work. He's telling us just to focus Pay attention to the things that you have heard. Remember what Christ has done. Do you remember what Christ has done? In case you forgot, let me remind you. The message of the Gospel is a message of a grand and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah promised the Jews long ago in the writings of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the Old Testament. He's the one who would come and sit on the throne of David to rule upon His throne forever. He came forth in the form of a man taking the form of a bondservant, living a perfect life among us, and yet many hated Him. They put Him to death, death upon a cross. And that death in God's sovereignty became the very means of our salvation. See, His death wasn't merely execution of another criminal. His death upon the cross had significance for us and our sins. His death upon the cross was a sacrifice for our sins, for the sins that we had done is why he was upon the tree and we need merely just just to look to Jesus just to merely believe in Jesus and we receive unbelievably we receive his forgiveness and it's not just a small forgiveness that we receive it's not like we forgive, receive a forgiveness when we look to him for this sin and we look to him for this sin when we look to Jesus and trust in him for our salvation he forgives us as Paul says in Colossians 2:14 he forgives us all our transgressions they are all wiped away And our forgiveness is not based on anything that we have done. It's completely free gift of the grace of God. We just look to Him. There's no regrets in God's mind either. It's not like He looks down upon us and says... They're messing up. Should, should I really have forgiven them? He never revokes that forgiveness. Right? It's not like he's in heaven saying, what have I done? I've made a mistake. I couldn't forgive them. No, it's complete, utter forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. We believe and trust in Him. And the writer here is merely saying, look to Him. Look to Jesus. Consider Him. When we look to Jesus, we're justified in His sight. That means all of our our sins that weighed up against us, that were accusing us, they were all wiped away. We stand before God, holy and blameless. And we can look forward to being with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. And Those are the kind of things you need to look on. And if you look on those things, you won't drift. But if you don't, you may well drift. We need to pay attention to what we have heard. That is what we have heard, Right? I want you to notice how emphatic the writer is here at this point. He doesn't merely say that we need to pay attention to these things. He says we need to pay much attention to these things. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say we need to pay close attention to these things. He says we need to pay much closer attention to these things. It would be enough if he had just said we need to pay attention to it. That would have caught our attention. It would have been enough if he just said we need to pay much attention to it. That would have been good too. But he said we need to pay much Closer attention. Using a double comparative. Much. Closer. Much means many. Often. Closer means to take a a closer look, to investigate more thoroughly. Like with a microscope. Investigating really what's going on. Engaging our attention upon our minds with these things. And that's what we must do if we're going to stay alert and not drift away. To this point, the writer is being a bit like the parent. He takes the child in hand. I'm not sure if you've ever done this before. I know I have on occasion. When it's really important, I say, Hannah, Hannah, this is really important. Mom and I are going away for the evening. Please obey your babysitter. Okay? It's really important for their sanity. Okay? Put them right there. And you speak with an in intense seriousness. That's what the writer of people... And if I could do that with all of you right now, I would. I would take you all in the face and say, pay much closer attention to what you have heard." so you don't drift <sighs> To lose focus off the gospel, to forget the gospel, to be bored with the gospel. To be so convinced that you know the Gospel, you don't need it any longer, puts you in great danger. It puts you you in a danger of drifting. If this is you this morning, and you know what? I know it's some of you this morning. In talking to you. In sharing with you and seeing your lives. If this is you this morning, I'm telling you, pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Don't drift. Well, we have three reasons why we ought not to drift. They're all right there in the text. First one is this, because Jesus is better. Verse 1. For this reason, the writer writes, those three words are a link. They're a link back to chapter 1. You say, for what reason? It says, everything I've said in chapter 1. In fact, here's something very interesting. In chapter 1, we see no commands. Not a single command. Not a single instruction in all of chapter 1. No practical applications at all. It just shows how great Jesus is and how greater He is than the angels. It's all it's about. In chapter 2, verse 1, here's our first point of application the entire book. You must pay much closer attention. But there's a link between the application and chapter 1. And the link is this. It's for the reason of everything in chapter 1... We need to pay much closer attention to what we have. They tie us back. And we might well paraphrase verse 1 like this. For the reason of everything I have just told you in chapter 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So you say, well, what's in chapter 1? Well, in case you've missed the last three weeks we've been in chapter 1, let me review. He is, chapter 1, verse 2, the heir of all things. That means Jesus will inherit the universe. He is the One through whom the world was made. He is the Creator of the universe. This is Jesus. He is, as it says in in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God. You see, Jesus, you have a reflection of, of the greatness and the grandeur of God because He's God Himself. He is the exact representation of God. He is God on earth for us. He sustains the universe, upholding all things by the Word of His power. And He is the one, verse 3, who made purification of sins. Here's the great, grand, glorious God, Creator, Sustainer of the world, who came and made purification of sins for us. He is the one, verse 3, who sits at the highest place of authority in the universe now. The right hand of God. He is the Son of God. He is the object of worship among all the angels. He sits upon an eternal throne and will reign as King forever. His reign is a perfectly good and righteous reign. His reign will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. As it says in Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And that's the reason why we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Jesus is better than anything or anyone in the universe. Think about this. When the President of the United States rolls into town, I I think you'd be paying attention to his visit among us, whether you disagree with his philosophies or not. You're going to be reading about him in the newspapers. You're going to be listening to the radio reports. So what's what's he doing? But think about this. Think about the President of the United States comes and does something special for you. You get a phone call, right, the week earlier and said, um, um, Matt Nelson, is this you? Yeah, Matt, yeah. Um, the President of the United States wants to visit you he He heard about your heroic efforts of bravery you You saved that infant from drowning in the the water of the pond the other day you walked about. He wants to come and honor you with a medal. Is, is that okay when you be? he's going come He's going come Thursday afternoon 4 o'clock can you can you be home? Okay, okay, good. You think you're going be home Thursday, four o'clock Matt? I think you're quitting work. There's a President of the United States coming to honor you. you're going to pay close attention to his visit. But think, the President of the United States is far different than the King of the Universe. Sure, He's powerful. He's more powerful than any earthly ruler on on our planet. But the President's a man. He's a sinful man. He makes sinful choices. And we can easily disagree with His decisions and His policies. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is a perfectly righteous ruler. All His ways are true and just. So think about the perfect President of the United States. Think about the one who who rules and reigns perfectly. Who you just love and adore, right? Just just perfect. And, And He comes and visits you. Of course you're going to pay much closer attention to that visit. But think about this. Jesus has done something personally for us. He has come and visited us. He has purified us from our sins. He's died in our place for the sins that we have committed. That means He has taken into account all of your sins... Every single last one of them and bore them upon the cross of Calvary personally. And in eternity, he would be able to notch and check off all those sins that you committed. In fact, it says in Colossians 2 that all our sins have been nailed to the cross. He's visited us personally. How much attention ought we to pay to him? I say we ought to pay much closer attention to him. There's no excuse for drifting because Jesus is better. My second point. Second reason why we ought not to drift. Because you won't escape. The first one attracts you by His loveliness. The second reason attracts you by your fate if you do drift. You drift down the river and you're not going to escape Niagara. Now you might say, well, I'll be just like Danielle Spain and Karen Himmel and I'll be rescued at the last moment. I'll say No not the case because the writer here says you won't escape. Look at verses 2 and 3. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, here comes the question, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's a rhetorical question. You know, a rhetorical question is a question which assumes an answer. In chapter 1, verse 5, To which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You? The answer there is rhetorically, nobody. And in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To who are the angels? Did He ever say that? He said that to none of the angels. And so likewise here, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What's the answer, kids? What's the answer? How will we escape? Gracie, do you know how we escape? You don't know? What? We won't. We won't escape. There is no escape if we drift. It's easier to escape from Alcatraz than it is from the hands of the Lord when you neglect His salvation. There's no escape. So, listen, don't try. Don't try to drift. Pay attention to the Lord. Pay attention to what you've heard. Church family, I'm calling you today. Do not drift in your faith. Let's look back at the author's reasoning here in verses 2 and 3. He argues from the lesser to the greater. First starts with the Old Covenant, and then he goes to the New Covenant. He says those in the Old Covenant didn't escape when they sinned. How will we, who've heard the glorious news of the gospel of Christ, ever escape if we neglect? Right? Back then, their sins came with swift judgment. They didn't escape. God's grace has come, remove judgment from us. And if we neglect grace, what escape is there for us? See, it's one thing to neglect a law that's bringing punishment upon you if you disobey. Any law stirs up within us a desire to rebel, doesn't it? And there are some signs here that say wet paint. I see that on some of the doors. And what does it want you to do? <laughs> is it really wet? Right? You want to touch. The speed limit says 55. We want to go how fast? We want to go a little bit faster. When this is a line you can't cross, you want to cross the line. There's something in us. Laws stir within our hearts a rebellion. But... But there's something else. A gift stirs what in our hearts. Ha! You, you've given it to me? Thank you. Boy, I just really appreciate your kindness to me. And, and it draws us in love and grace to obey. So it's one thing to, to rebel and resist against the law that's coming with uh, authority and rules. And it's another thing to resist against a, a gift that is given. The president comes to your door. And... Uh, He's bringing you this medal of honor. Matt, he's left the service here, but four o'clock Thursday evening, he comes with this medal and he wants to give it to you. And if you take it and throw it down and stomp it, what's that? He was extending kindness to you and you refused him. How will you escape? You won't. That will be on the news all over and you will bring great shame upon yourself. But that's what you do. When you drift, you see this great thing that Christ has done, and you say, Not good enough for me. And you just go your way. There's no escape from that. Let's look at the details here. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. It's talking there about the law. You know, there are only a few hints of this in the Old Testament. It said that Moses, when he received the law on Mount Sinai, was in the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Deuteronomy thirty three verse two. That's probably angels he was in the midst of. Psalm sixty-eight, verse seventeen has a similar reference, talking about in the midst of chariots he was. So perhaps when Moses received the law it was surrounded by angels, came through angels. That's about all the Old Testament data we have, but in the New Testament, the writer here says that the law came through angels. Um, Paul said in Galatians three, nineteen that the law was ordained through angels. Stephen, when he was preaching, said the same thing. The law was ordained through angels. We don't know how it was, but we do know that the Jews thought of angels highly. They thought of angels rightly, as mighty warriors. And here was the law coming to Moses, coming through these powerful, awesome warrior angels. Helped to make it reliable, right? This grand show of, of the law coming down to us. And it said that that word proved unalterable. It was established. It was fully binding. And it was there was this law from God over the people of Israel. When it was broken, it came with a stiff penalty. And we might even say, wow, that's, that's really stiff. Like, typical of this is the story in Numbers 15 of the man they found gathering wood in the Sabbath. They arrested him, took him into custody, inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said that he should be stoned to death. And so they stoned him. Why? Because he was, he was insulting God. Here was the Sabbath and they knew they were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. He was defiantly opposing God and God says, I won't allow any of that. Every transgression, disobedience, received a just penalty. He was stoned to death. The standard of the law was that he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Children, you can be thankful you live in the day of grace now. It's the exact penalty that is required. Every transgression, every overstep of the law required a just penalty. Every disobedience, every understep. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. Sins of omission, sins of commission. The law required a just penalty. That was the old covenant. Paul called it a ministry of death. Paul called it a ministry of condemnation. And then there's the Gospel, which Paul called the ministry of the Spirit. He called the ministry of righteousness. It is that God is not coming in a flowering, 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 flower, whatever. He's coming in a in a in a mountain of rage and fire. He's coming in grace. He's coming in a person, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty of every transgression and disobedience for we who believe in the cross. No longer, listen, no longer do we need to live under the threat of punishment. No longer do we need to have this cloud of condemnation hanging over us, watching our every step. Instead, we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, certainly we sin, and, and certainly we are remorseful about our sins, and certainly we confess our sins. But you need to hear this, beloved, is that your remorse doesn't somehow pay for the consequences of the sin you committed. Your confession doesn't pay or doesn't make up for the sins you committed. That's Roman Catholic theology. That is not Protestant theology. That's not the theology of the Bible. theology of the Bible says that, that we face neither punishment for our sins, nor do we have to pay anything back to God at all to set things straight for us. When we believe in the cross of Christ, there's no separation between us and Him. Now certainly we sin, there's there's lack of fellowship and we feel really bad because we desire and long to love God and serve Him and please Him in all respects. But in the Gospel, we are justified. There's no longer contention. There's no longer separation. There is harmony between us and the Lord because Christ, through faith, has made us righteous. And then, to turn away from that, we won't escape. I mean, it's one thing for the, the Ministry of condemnation to come, but for us, we don't need to live on eggshells. We live in light of God's love for us, and we can look forward to a life of joy with Him forever. And rightly, does the, the writer to Hebrews call it so great a salvation? I just say, the more I live, the older I get, the more sinful I see myself, the more I see how great a salvation that we have. I see other religions working and working and working and working, and I say, us, oh, so we just believe and enters rest. What a great salvation we have. The more I think about it, the more it thrills my soul that our salvation costs the death of Jesus. And and it is so valuable to us that we will sell everything we have to gain the pearl of great price because it is so good. We have a great salvation. Now, can you imagine rejecting such a salvation? Can you imagine yawning at the good news? Can you imagine not caring about that? It's almost inconceivable to think about that ever happening. Yet there are those who do. I remember as a child watching a, a Peter Sellers Pink Panther movie. Okay, I think it was called maybe The Revenge of the Pink Panther. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it was. But Peter Sellers, you know, Chief Inspector Jacques Clouseau this year was a bumbling, a bumbling fool. But he was, he was um, interrogating these people for this crime and and at one point, uh, he got his hand caught in a, like a, I forget what it was. It was a, 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 a she, armor. You know, a guy had an armor with his big thing, ball in hand and sling in hand. Like, and he caught it and he couldn't get it off. So he, he continued to do his interrogation with this thing in hand and, and trying to do that. And At one point, there was this fly flying around, landed on this very nice looking piano. And so he took, and he wanted to get that fly in. So he took this big club and went, Whoop bam And this piano, it had a big hole in it. The leg fell out. And a lady stood up and said, What have you done? And she said, Oh, it's just a mere blemish. She said, No, no, that was a priceless Steinway. And you remember what his line was? Not anymore. And then just continued on like Nothing. Now, I find that incredibly hilarious. That was a priceless Steinway. Well, not anymore. Now, as I was continuing my investigation, and and continue continuing like it was nothing. He made light. And and that's very funny in a movie, of, of seeing something so valuable and so costly being made of so light and so trivial. But in real life, that would not be funny. Try that on your mother, kids, when you break her favorite porcelain vase. It's not funny. And you try that, neglecting the grand and glorious, beautiful, great salvation we have in Christ. And there's nothing funny about that in one iota. What is funny in a movie is far from funny with God. You will not escape. You won't escape that. You say, what does that do to God? Well, it puts Him to open shame, is what Hebrews 6 says. puts Him to open shame. You drift from the Gospel, you put Jesus Christ to open shame before the world to see. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, He says this, again using the comparison of less to the greater, He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses how much severe punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? There's another rhetorical question. You say, He's going to receive a much severer penalty than those the Old Covenant did when you trample underfoot the Son of God, when you insult the Spirit of grace. There is no escape for you. Because what we have in our salvation is so great To turn away from that means doom and destruction for us. And to drift from the Gospel is to insult the Spirit of grace. So church family, don't. Don't drift. Don't drift from the salvation. Don't drift because Jesus is better. Chapter 1. Don't drift because you won't escape. And don't drift, thirdly, because God has spoken. Or you might say, "God has made it sure," or you might say that God has confirmed it. Or you might say that, that God has made us has made it known to us this salvation is real and true. The great salvation we have in Christ is firm and secure because God secured it in His word. Look at verse 3, second half. After it was first, number one, spoken through the Lord, it was second, confirmed to us by those who heard, and third, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Jesus spoke it. Those who heard it confirmed it. God Himself sealed it with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts. The thrust of this sentence here is to back up what a great salvation we have. It's not just we have this salvation out there and well, it might be true. No, He said we got this salvation there and it is true. It is firm. It is secure. Jesus first spoke it. The message of salvation we have was first spoken through Jesus who walked among us and He taught us. At the beginning of His ministry, His focus was on the good news. After John had been taken to custody, he entered Galilee and he began proclaiming. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king is here. I am here. Repent. Turn from your sins. Believe in this glorious gospel. When he returned to his hometown Nazareth, his first public sermon, he opened the book to the scroll in Isaiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." To set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He set the scriptures down, the scroll down, and he said, Today, that has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, there's freedom to be found, and it's in me. I'm your Savior. I'm your Messiah. Come to me. So he walked through the villages and towns. He always focused his attention upon the need for and the means of salvation. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called sinners to repentance. And He always called people to Himself, providing the sure way to heaven through faith in Him. Then He died upon the cross and was raised just like He said, And secondly, then the witnesses who saw that confirmed the message of Jesus was true. That's what we see there at the end of verse 3. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Everything that Jesus said was confirmed to us by those who heard. There were eyewitnesses who walked about Galilee and saw Jesus at the time and confirmed everything that Jesus said was true. He really had the power to heal. He really loved like no man loved. He really did raise people from the dead. And He Himself indeed raised from the dead. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. We can believe Him. But further than Jesus speaking, and those who saw Jesus speaking, God Himself gave testimony to the truthfulness of our great salvation. Verse 4, God also testifying with them, testifying with Jesus, testifying with these witnesses who have spoken, it, it, here is God's testifying. He is uh, soon martyr, soon with. Mar- he is giving a testimony with him. God Himself takes the, takes the witness stand. He Himself goes on record and confirms the truthfulness of the message of salvation. How? By signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. He confirmed the fact that Jesus was true. He confirmed the fact, the fact of His messengers through miracles that He worked in the first century. And you can read through the book of Acts and you are amazed at the miracles done there. People speaking in languages they didn't know. A lame beggar getting up and walking in the name of Jesus. Aeneas, the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed, I think, for eight years was healed in the name of Jesus. Tabitha was raised from the dead in the name of Jesus, Ananias and Sapphira, and they lied to God, they lied to the Holy Spirit, claiming to have sold this property for such and such a price. Died as soon as the confession was out of their mouth. It says they breathed their last and fell over. These miracles were God's way of saying the salvation we have in Jesus Christ is a great salvation. You can trust the apostles. You can trust what they say. Look, they confirmed it by their actions. As true as you've seen these miracles, right? In fact, it says they were doing so many miracles that people were just even looking to get in the shadow of Peter. And it, it says even that the, um, the New Testament, the, the disciples and apostles were healing everybody who was coming to them, just like Jesus. Nobody who was coming to them for healing didn't get healed at times. Though Paul, even by the end of his life, said, I want this thorn out of my flesh. Or maybe it was a person, maybe not. He suffered from an eye condition. There were certainly sicknesses, but at some point there was these disciples doing these massive healing to testify to the truthfulness of the Scriptures. That's what all these signs, there's miracles, wonders, those are many ways signs and wonders, par- parallel thoughts there. Various miracles, various powers they exhibited within them, gifts of the Holy Spirit, probably part of tongues and interpretations and healings, administration, all that list. You can see it in 1 Corinthians 12. Romans 12. These lists are these signs that that God says the salvation that we have is secure. So don't drift. So, I come back to my main point. Don't drift. Are you drifting? Are you drifting? Pay attention to Christ. Pay attention to things that you've heard. Well, I want you to take your hymnals, open up to hymn number 11. We're going to sing this, but before we sing it, I do want to um, reflect upon this hymn a bit because it was written by someone who, who drifted. Maybe the music team can come up here, that would be fine. It's Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a great hymn, sung it, maybe some of you have memorized it. Written by Robert Robinson. He was converted under the ministry of George Whitfield, and I believe that he is one of those who, um, when George Whitfield was preaching, he was mocking him. So, in, in other words, George Whitfield was up there preaching and, you know, mouthing the words and doing the gestures like George Whitfield. You're just trying to mock him like, you're such a a fake, such a fraud. And then God convicted him and the very words that he was speaking, repent, the kingdom has it. I need to repent. And he repented and turned to Christ and trusted him for forgiveness. He became a pastor and was greatly used of the Lord, writing theology, writing hymns. And this is one that he wrote. You can see his heart of praise in the first stanza there. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing Your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise His name, I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. This this hymn sets forth such a perfect picture of New Covenant worship, doesn't it? The streams of mercy that are never ceasing just keep coming upon us. They call for songs of loudest praise. We sing of the redemption, the mercy that comes. That's what stirs our heart to sing praise to Him because we know Him to be so merciful and so loving and so kind to us. It's true worship. Praise that flows from a heart that's experienced the mercy of God. Then the second stanza, Robinson places his trust in God's sustaining power to lead him home to glory. Hitherto thy love has blessed me. Thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, and he to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. There he just put forth his faith and trust the sustaining power of God. And in the third stanza, Robinson knew and expressed his own struggles. He said, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. O oh Lord, right? Let Your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to Thee. What a wonderful thing. See, it's God's goodness that binds us to go to Him. That's the new covenant. That God gives us new hearts and new minds. He sets a law upon our hearts that we want to and follow after his goodness. He's not binding us externally. He's binding our hearts with goodness. Parents, it's a good word for you. How do you need to bind the hearts of your kids? Not with external rules and regulations, but get at their hearts. As we talked about in Family Night last Sunday night. Get at their hearts. So that then they desire in your goodness to them to follow after and obey your parents. That's the best way. And then Robinson said. Lord, this is my life. I'm on a river and I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And he gives his heart says, Here, God, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Just a a prayer pleading that God would help him so as not to drift. Now, sadly, these words were somewhat prophetic. Robert Robinson drifted away from the faith. He lapsed into sin flirted with the heretical doctrines of Unitarianism, rather than the exclusivity of Christ. As the story goes, as legend has it, maybe it's apocryphal, I'm not sure, maybe it's tradition, I'm not sure, but it's well known in the Christian world. There's some semblance of truth in this. The story goes this, that Robinson was riding his stagecoach one day. He met a young woman. It was a spiritually minded woman and was reading her hymnal. It's a practice you might try doing sometime. Just read your hymnal. Stirring her heart to affect towards God. And, and she was, he was there and she was here and you know she probably desiring to share the gospel with this poor soul. So what do you think of this hymn that I've been reading? As the story goes, it was this very hymn. Confronted by his own words he wrote, he said, Madam, I'm the poor and unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had them. And then she told him, these streams of mercy are still flowing. And as I read, he was later restored to fellowship. Though we don't know. We hope. We can trust. The story is out. But, but there's a drifting soul. And I just say, church family, are you drifting? The jury may be out for you. You may have passed the control gates. And you may be on your way to Niagara Falls. And you may just be, be buying time. Be just waiting time until you hit the falls. I encourage you today, consider Jesus. Look to Him. Fix your eyes upon Him. It's your only escape. He's better than angels. As we're going to see the book of Hebrews, He's better than anything else that you can imagine, religious-wise. There's no escape. God has made our salvation sure. So let's trust in that salvation. Well, I want us to sing here hymn number 11. I want us to sing it um, contemplatively, if you will. Sing some prayer. Close your eyes, even if you know these words. May God answer these prayers that He would tune our hearts to sing the right way and that He would bind our wandering hearts to Him by the glories, the goodness of the Gospel of Christ. So let's sing it together as a final prayer. Come Thou Fountain of every blessing That he who began a good work in us should be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray that we who you foreknew and predestined and called and justified will also glorify us, O Lord. I pray that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pray, Lord, that we would press on to maturity. Lord, that you would permit that, as Hebrews 6 3 says. I pray, Lord, as a body, that we would be encouraging one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of us would fall into an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But may we encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Lord, use this church to call call those who are drifting back that we might see you work among us, see the great salvation we have not neglected in any way, but embraced and loved and cherished and followed until our dying day. May we not insult you. May we not set you aside. May we not crucify you again. May we not put you to open shame not regard, sun clean the blood of the covenant. So, Lord, I pray that You would help us and keep us this day. Show us the glories of Jesus. Help us to look to Him. Just look to Him to be helped in our walk. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just even with your head bowed right now, I'm just led to do this. Perhaps even some of you as a Straying, wandering heart. Just deal with the Lord even in these moments. Say, God, help me. Maybe you feel helpless. Maybe you feel like God have tried. Well, plead to God to give you the strength. Plead to God to give you the, the courage as they looked in the old covenant up to the snake and were healed. Help to look to Jesus and be healed. And find in Him your all and all. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.